Retro Hangover is supported via Patreon by listeners like you. We would especially like to thank patrons Lyle McCarns, Ashton Ruby, Randall Quiggle, Tony G, Katie Quigg, Paul Romalo, Raging Demon, JC, Megan Caruso, Masked Llama, Andrew Liguori, Retro Overdrive, Ozzy Garcia, Keith Gasper, and Diskimera. Your continued engagement and generous donations are deeply appreciated. Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to episode 112 of Retro Hangover. Hello, retro and classic gamers. Welcome to the podcast where we beautifully beatify Beelzebub biting beaten beetle bugs. This is episode 112 of Retro Hangover. I am your co-host, Chris Copleen, with special guest, Try from My Life in Gaming. And, as always, your host, Shane. Dick Books You know, I, I didn't even think about this, but Volksdragon, that is a fantastic pun. I have to give you I have to give you full credit on that one. Also, fun fact, in German, that would mean the people's dragon. So there you go. There it is. A giant people's dick dragon. <laughs> I mean, after all, you know, it Gorp is for the people, is it not? He is. He was created by the people, so he is for the people. It's true. Anyway, welcome to our wonderful show where we are going to be talking about, as you already saw, probably when you click the title, Beetle Adventure Racing, which is a patron poll winner. That's right. So thanks to Randall for this suggestion, which all our patrons voted on. And you can also vote on recommendations from our beautiful patrons at patreon.com. Look up Retro Hangover. And you, too, can vote on a patron poll, which is once a quarter. So thank you, Randall, for the suggestion. We are going to talk about this game. But first and foremost, welcome to the show, Try. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you uh, stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. When uh, when you sent me a list of uh, potential t- upcoming topics that I, I could possibly join in on, I, I was surprised to see Beetle Adventure Racing there. I was like, who who would vote for this but me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the pantheon of... Uh patron selected topics i have to say that you know without spoiling the ending here or anything this is like on the the end of the spectrum that's like tolerable you know and and any of the patrons that are listening right now you know you you know what you did and you know what they've picked before and like so this was a little bit of a breath of fresh air not gonna lie yeah yeah i mean the, the game definitely has a uh I mean, it's it's one of those like not really obscure N64 games, but like, you know, it's it's one of the mid range, like third party games that people do talk about. When I say mid range, I don't mean like in terms of quality. I just mean in terms of like, you know, some people have heard of it. Some people haven't. You know, it's it's notoriety. Yeah, notoriety. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's no Superman 64. That's for sure. No. Yes. (laughs) I will say this. I think this is the third patron game that started with a B. The letter B is dominating our patron charts. Mm. 
you have Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Bubsy 3D, <laughs> and now Beetle Adventure Racing. Which I still maintain Buffy for the Game Boy Color, surprisingly not a bad game. Hmm. Until the last level. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> then it becomes terrible. But as we are wont to do, before we get into the topic du jour, we'd like to talk about the games that we have been playing. So as we have our illustrious guest Try here, take it away, Try. What have you been playing lately? Oh, well, I recently finished up uh, Horizon Not Forbidden West Zero Dawn <laughs> because when uh, the new game was coming out, you know, I've had uh, Zero Dawn on my backlog for years and years and years. I think I was listening to a Digital Foundry video and they were saying like, oh, like there's some f- new footage that just came out for Forbidden West. You know, this was before it released. They're like, oh, it's kind of spoilery. And I'm like, you know, I better like actually play through this game before I accidentally get spoiled with all the the hype coming out around the new one. So I did that. I really enjoyed it. Since then, I've started up uh, Persona 5 Strikers, oh. which is, you know, the the Muso Warriors style game uh, for Persona 5, which I, you know, I'm only about like three or so hours into it, but it, <laughs> I'm going to be interested to see how it pans out because uh, I've been under the impression that it's pretty well received, especially by like the Persona fan base. Like it's very much kind of considered like almost kind of a sequel, like a kind of a good one. Uh, in terms of story and stuff, especially compared to like the the fighting spinoff and the dancing spinoffs, like it seems like it's setting up to be a decent sequel. Uh, but like as a Muso game, like I'm I'm kind of itching to get into a little bit more action, and it's been a little slower to get into that. So I'm not too sure how the Muso elements gonna gonna pan out. And as for the more of a, a retro side, yesterday I was playing Turrican Two <laughs> on the wow. uh, from the uh, from the Turrican flashback collection so that's actually an emulation of the uh amiga version and uh i, I beat turkin one a few weeks uh ago and uh i feel like turkin two is off to a rougher start for me so yeah <laughs> juggling a few things now, persona 5 strikers my son is a big persona 5 fan I, I love the first one as well but i've heard strikers that's more of a sequel to the vanilla persona 5 as opposed to persona 5 royal correct Right. That's why I've actually not played Royal myself. I played the first version, like, you know, pretty much pretty soon after it came out. Um, and I want to play Royal. But yeah, I the the there's like a new character that they added in Royal um, and she's not in Strikers from what I heard, because I was asking people, like, do I need to play Royal before I play Strikers? And they said, no, it's a sequel to the vanilla version. Mm hmm. It definitely doesn't look like your orthodox Muso either. So I, no, I, I kind of no. pick up what you're putting down. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird because like I I finally got into the first area where they like actually let you like switch between characters while playing, and like you're kind of getting into these like you're approaching these enemies in the field, and then it unveils a whole bunch of enemies to fight. So it's almost more like, you know, entering into battles and RPG rather than one giant field where there's just always monsters or enemies out in the field. And there's sort of like a, a overarching strategy to the battlefield. It's, it's doesn't seem to be quite like that so far. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little unsure how the gameplay aspect is, is going to shape up, but I'm, it's definitely, definitely good. Uh, you know, hanging out with those characters again and, and being in that world and with that music again. So we'll, we'll see how see how it turns out. Nice. So, Shane, how about mm. you? What have you been playing? And by the way, I got to recommend Turrican to you just to get your opinion since you're a huge Contra fan. And that's essentially 
European Contra. So I'm glad Tribe brought that up. You know, I I did not think I was going to like it as much as I did the first one. I was very afraid of like how, you know, there's European games of that era love to put uh, just like millions of like item bubbles for you to collect and like lots of secrets to discover and stuff. And I thought it was going to be very too nonlinear. And it is to a point, but it's still very firmly level based. So, yeah, as a huge Contra fan who was also kind of unsure about Turrican. Um, yeah, I would say I recommend it. I mean, they're di- very, it's a very different kind of game in, in the end, but uh, I do recommend it. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. As far as what I have been playing, uh, I actually have quite a bit. I've uh, been bouncing around between a, a couple of things, actually. Um, well, so I don't think I mentioned it because I think it was in between episodes, but I did finish Resident Evil 5. Ooh. I think that clocked in at about, I don't know, 12 to 14 hours, give or take, for, for the main campaign. I have thoughts about that <laughs> that we'll probably end up putting down in a, in a rapid fire review. I imagine at some point we will probably end up talking about that game in a mainline episode. But, you know, I figure... We probably should get to RE two through four first, possibly some Generally of the other speaking. spinoffs also. But yeah, uh, you know, all told, not a bad experience. Some completely infuriating sections, but other than that, not too bad. Better than I thought. Let's say that better than I thought going into it. I- I'm a big defender of five, but we'll see. Know. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and and truth be told, I think it actually would have been a lot more enjoyable if i had actually been playing co-op with someone since that's you know literally what it was built for yes yes very true uh yeah so outside of that though so i actually tracked down a copy of crimson land it's available on steam and this sounds relevant only to people who have been listening to me ramble about this uh for the past couple of weeks uh when i was talking about vampire survivors and I, I ended up picking it up because uh, fortuitously it went on sale shortly after I found it on Steam. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it was a top down like twin stick shooter from like 2003. And it was something that I played a lot of uh, back at that that time. Um, also happened to be when I was getting towards the end of my my high school career. And so I may possibly have spent several <clears throat> um computer science class periods uh clandestinely playing crimson land on the school pcs sorry mr hughes if you didn't catch me doing that you're not sorry cats cats out of the bag now but but that game's still a lot of fun they actually did an hd sort of remaster of it uh so it looks pretty good it plays really well it's basically exactly how i remember it with a bunch of extra goodies so good time if you like twin stick shooters like that highly recommend you go and check it out but the giant Dark Souls flavored elephant in the room, of course, is Elden Ring. I have been playing that basically constantly since it came out, and it is fantastic. It is the best Soulsborne game. I don't care what Twitter is saying. It is brilliant, and I love it, and I am thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. It's not too difficult, is it? Actually, no, no. I'm supposed to say yes. No, listen, man, I call them like a season. Okay. And the thing is, is like, that's what a lot of people, you know, the, the get gooders out there are complaining about is that it's too easy for like a souls game. And honestly, I think it strikes like just the right balance, especially given that it's transitioned into this open world where Soulsborne games have never really gone before. 
I think that tweaking of that balance, I think really serves it, um, very well for, for the style of game that it's going for. Not to say that it's not challenging because I died to Godric like eight times last night and got that, got that good old dark souls rage back. So, (laughs) but all in all, I have, I've been very much enjoying my time with it. I, I haven't picked it up yet, but I'm definitely liking what I'm hearing, you know, kind of the idea of it sounds like you can kind of go kind of wherever you want. Like there's this boss you encounter really early on who you're probably not ready to actually handle. So the the actual design of the game seems to kind of encourage you to be like, well, I guess I'm just going to go somewhere else. And then you'll just kind of organically discover these other areas and other challenges. And then when you come back, you know, you're, you'll be ready, hopefully from what I've heard anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the beauty of it. The one thing that I will say, uh, there are times where I miss the much more focused and, and purposeful level design from like DS one. But mm-hmm. then again, I don't think you can really top that, but yeah, I think the the open world nature of it sort of necessitates a, a break from that. But to your point, when you go and just sort of go off and start exploring and you start finding these like little side caves or like ruins or something, which suddenly turn into their own little miniature dungeon. Yeah, that's oh, it's, it's so good. So good. That's exactly what I've heard. And and like, so I assume in those areas, they have that very, like, very deliberate, like enemy placement and stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's what I love about the series. I mean, that's what that's what makes it feel like, you know, an old like Castlevania game or something like that, you know, where it's like it's all about like we have intentionally put this enemy here because, you know, you're going to it's going to come at you this way and you're going to come out this way. And. Uh, yeah, very, very NES like sort of level design in that sense. Yeah, for sure. And that's and that's, I think, where that design sensibility still factors into this game quite a bit. You've got that sort of open worldy like, oh, look, there's guys roaming around in this field. Isn't that neat? But then once you get to some place like today, I was just playing through Castle Morn, which is one of the areas that you get to. And once you step inside of like the castle grounds, like it's it's all very purposefully put together like there are enemies that are placed very intentionally in certain places to just totally wreck your shit if you're not paying attention things like that so it's uh yeah man i am i am looking forward to the next several hours for sure nice but at any rate i suppose chris should probably talk about what he's been playing so chris what what have you been up to that's definitely not elden ring so i've been playing quite a bit of games lately i'm surprised you didn't bring up power stone Shane, because like you became a quick master of cheapness <laughs> with that one character. <laughs> if I yes, brought it up in our streams, by that but, you mean you, I found one character that I was semi decent at and just stuck with yes. that the entire time. Yes. Yes. Until I found the character who, when she powered up, had nipple tassels and then it was all over. That's true. Yes. Uh, so Power Stone, because uh, I we Shane uh, had a had a bachelor party. By the time you listen to this episode, he would have already had the wedding, I believe. Yes, yeah, I believe so. It's actually happening this weekend that you're listening to this. If you're looking listening to this new, so oh, congratulations, congratulations. Shane. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a, a bachelor party uh, for him, and we started out at our local arcade, and then we went over to his friend's house, and I brought my Dreamcast and a monitor. I tried to hook it up via VGA, but we couldn't get the volume to work, which is fine. So we had to hook it up through uh, composite, 
in that. So whatever. We still got it going, but we were able to play some Power Stone and we all had a good time. And uh, Shane did did good work against all of us, even though we were self-proclaimed fighting game aficionados, at least of that era. And uh, we got our asses kicked. So good job on you, Shane. It's that Jack juggle, baby. <laughs> Other than that, I have played Dolphin Blue, Ooh. which I decided I was going when I came back, I wanted to test out my VGA cable and it worked beautifully on my LCD TV and I was able to get sound. So played some Dolphin Blue, played through that. That game's hard as hell. And from what I understand, it was made by the same people who did Metal Slug, and it plays a lot like Metal Slug, and yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, that, that's the main reason I want to play it. I've not played it. I, I assume you did you play with like an optical drive emulator on, on your Dreamcast? Yeah, I, I use the mode. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, able to load it up. Plays beautifully. Free play, so it's, it's all like the arcade. It's a wonderful game. Uh, addition to that, I did finish East Origin with every single character. Amazing game. If you have any love for the East series that is required playing. You just, you have to play it. It's an, it's so much fun. Yeah. I, I need to play that again. I've only, what's, what's oh, her name? So Unica, the ax lady. Yes. Unica. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I played, played through, it was, it was a good while ago, but yeah, I only played through with the one character, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I'd like to play it again. I, I like that. I do like that sort of era of ease. Oh, it's it's so much fun. It uses the E6 engine, yep. uh, also the uh, Oath and Felgana engine, which I have yet to play. I'm probably going to play that as my next game coming Ooh, up, too. Oh, yeah. Because I'm swapping between the E series and the other series, of which is my last game I'm going to talk about here, which I just finished the Final Fantasy III Pixel Remaster. Uh-huh. And I had a, a pretty good time with it. By three, we're talking we're talking three, three, not six, three. Yes, three, three. The Famicom 3. I had a good time with it just because, I mean, going back to the Famicom version, which I thought was, I won't say unfairly difficult until later in the game and just had some weird design decisions in terms of utilizing its job class, which is is really half-baked when you compare it to Final Fantasy V, Final Fantasy Tactics. But of course, this was first. And you could argue who did it better between Dragon Quest 3 or Final Fantasy 3. I think I tend to lean towards Dragon Quest 3, but Final Fantasy 3 is far more flexible. One of the things I did like about the remaster, though, is first of all, the music is just, oh, it's so good. Uh, it really shines through and shows what Uematsu is probably thinking about when he, you know, was composing these tracks for the Famicom uh, back in the late 80s. So I, the soundtrack's phenomenal. That and the difficulty is tweaked slightly. Having played Final Fantasy 1 and 2 pixel remasters, I'll say this, the Final Fantasy 3 pixel remasters difficulty is tweaked in such a way that it's not insultingly easy, but still makes it an easier playthrough than its its Famicom counterpart by by miles. So it's very accommodating, it's very accessible. And if that's one of the things you've been worried about to play a lot of these pixel remasters, that these games would be too hard, that's definitely not the case. Now, it might be too easy if you love the originals. I did not care for Final Fantasy 3 as much because of the really high difficulty, which is fine. If you love that, that's good. But I was finally able to beat this game as it was presented in this format, and I could say I had a good time. And I will be doing a rapid fire review in that as well, which I kind of already did, but it's going to be more long form. So there you go. I, I played the DS version of that back when that came out. That's the only version of yeah. three that I've really played through, which I, I don't know how the difficulty of that compares to the original Famicom one. But I, d- I remember feeling like 
I was about to die almost all the time, but I rarely actually <laughs> did, which is kind of like the perfect difficulty level, actually. Like you've got yes. that tension, but then you're not like annoyed either. <laughs> no, I think you're spot on. It's been a while since I played the DS version of three as well. I, I can't remember how it compares. I just didn't really like the characters. I, I liked the the more the the blank slate the onion nights. Yeah, mm, I, I kind of liked the characters uh, that they tried to do. But then again, you know, starting with that version, it, you know, might have colored it. R- remind me, the remastered, is it using Famicom style graphics or are they upgrade to like uh, like Final Fantasy Origin, like PS1 sort of style? Uh, it's It's using the PS1 style. Okay, so it's like because, you know, they they way back on the Wonderswan, they were they released uh, remastered versions of one and two that kind of look like the GBA and the mm-hmm. PS1 versions. And they were there. There were screenshots of one for three that got canceled and never released. So it's it's cool that there is a a version that kind of goes for that style now. Yeah, they skipped three because of space limitations. So they made a one, two and four for the Wonderswan. Ah. Uh... But that's all we got. Shane, why? By the way, what do you want? We need to talk about the game of this episode, oh. which is Deal mm. Adventure Racing. And as we kick off every single official episode, I know we we've been told we waffle a bit when we do these things, but that's fine because this conversation was great. But we need to talk about this game. And before we talk about the game, we are going to get into our brief history of this game. Oh. So, Shane, yes, if you'd be so kind and give us a brief history of Beetle Adventure Racing. The late 90s had to have been one of the greatest eras for racing games. Games like Cruisin' USA and Cruisin' World had become popular in what was left of arcades, alongside mainstays like Daytona USA. Many arcade-styled racers had also found a home on the Nintendo 64, which was thriving in an environment where it was pretty much that or action platformers. Whether it was the ever-popular Mario Kart, F-Zero, or Wipeout, or even the lesser-known Extreme G or Hydro Thunder, the arcade racer was still a popular genre even if it started to wane after the release of the landmark racing sim Gran Turismo. Electronic Arts, never one to not have some product tapping into popular markets, had their own arcade-style racing series with Need for Speed that found a decent following on Sony's PlayStation. And while the series had long been multi-platform, it had yet to show up on the N64 in 1998, a platform where a release may see a bit of traction and success. So, in 1998, Electronic Arts, via EA Canada, teamed up with Paradigm Entertainment, a development studio who had previously worked on Pilot Wings 64, decided that they would create the aptly named Need for Speed 64. The game made it considerably far into development, with previews even being published in the October 1998 issue of Next Generation magazine. Early previews showed it wouldn't differ too much from what EA had already been releasing on the PlayStation, just that it would be for Nintendo's 64-bit console. However, ultimately, EA decided to cancel the project in favor of a rebranding. Volkswagen had released a new revision of their Beetle, with the tasteful name New Beetle, perhaps an inspiration for Nintendo a bit down the line, 
And uh, it turns out the adorable little bug had captured the hearts of millions. As stated earlier, EA is never one to turn down a trend. So instead of sticking to supercars for their N64 racing title, EA negotiated a deal with Volkswagen to make Need for Speed 64 a racing game that would only feature the new Beetle. Beetle Adventure Racing would see release on February 28th of 1999 in North America, September 24th in Europe, and November 26th in Japan, all in the same year. The game was widely praised by critics on release, with Metacritic giving it an aggregate score of 90. Critics pointed out its varied and well-crafted level design, as well as its detailed and high-quality graphical presentation. Ironically, many critics pointed to its single-car theme as one of its flaws, with IGN reviewer Peer Schneider going so far to contemplate what the game would have been like had EA gone for a multi-car license, such as Need for Speed. <laughs> Since its release, Beetle Adventure Racing has gained more of a niche cult following, with most of its modern popularity being gained from retrospectives from modern reviewers. There was a sequel planned, but was never released, and thus presumably cancelled. Beetle Adventure Racing did find its following by being a high-quality racing game on a system that was dominated by the genre. It is a reminder of what can be done when a quality experience can be tied together with a popular trend and also some cute cars. And that is your brief history of Beetle Adventure Racing. All right. Thank you, Shane, for that. Uh, I'm sure you enjoyed reading that as much as I enjoyed making you read that. I don't know why I said that. That sounds incredibly awkward. <laughs> that's I some think, inside you know, <laughs> baseball there, but yeah, that's fine. Yes. Thank you, Chris, oh. for writing that definitely 100% grammatically accurate brief history. I appreciate it very much. I know. I know. Right. <laughs> One of the things about this, this brief history that a lot of you might be wondering mm. is because Need for Speed, I think, is a much bigger name now. Sure. It is a bigger name now than it was in 1999. I think they're up to Need for Speed 3 on the PlayStation at the time. It's not to say Need for Speed was a like a, a no-name racing game, but I think Ridge Racer was a little bit bigger at this time. Gran Turismo said certainly dominated everything on the PlayStation, but your arcade racing scene, that, that was on the N64, as, as we were talking about. But Need for Speed was not as big as the Volkswagen Beetle. It, it, few things were chris no and i know exactly the target demographic they were going after moms because you know moms and uh you know middle to upper middle class uh suburban people and i know this because my father owned a volkswagen new beetle so <laughs> i can say yeah they they targeted the right demographic i'm almost shocked i didn't know about or even had this game i don't think i have ever ridden in a Volkswagen Beetle, new or old, to tell you the truth. But I've certainly played plenty of Beetle Adventure Racing. I mean, it's, it's basically the same experience, right? Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Speaking of personal experiences, uh, I think I have, just looking at the notes, I have the least interesting story, which I already alluded to, which is I didn't play this game at all. So thank you, Randall, for voting for this game. Huzzah! Uh, I, I will say that 
I was looking forward to playing this game, though, just because you do get a lot of uh, YouTubers that have come out post-release, especially within the past five, ten years, who have said that Beetle Adventure Racing is one of those hidden gems. Maybe that's not the best use of words. Uh, that's one of those games that just went under the radar uh, for a lot of N64 owners, which I don't think is true because it's relatively affordable. So it seems to have sold well. It's just not one of those games I heard of. But in retrospect, you do get uh, you have heard a lot of good things about this in, in recent times. So it is it's one of those it's one of those games. Uh, how about you, Shane? Well, I think the thing is that. It's not so much that folks didn't necessarily play it or that there's not some awareness of it. I, I think it was that a lot of people assumed that it was just going to be a trash fire, given that it was an obvious product tie in, as most of those right. tend to be. But yeah, I, I actually ended up renting this a handful of times from a particular place. And the reason I say this is because I know in past episodes, I've just defaulted to saying like, yeah, I rented some shit from Blockbuster, which is true. But I feel like I just need to give credit where credit is due, that there was a video rental place in my hometown in Maine as I was growing up. They were called Home Vision Video. And that was actually the place that I went to more often than not. So wherever you are previous owners of home vision video just know <laughs> that i'm giving you your proper due here and now on the beetle adventure racing episode of all places nice i certainly didn't rent it as many times as uh let's say cruising world that's for sure because yeah. i still think that that's a superior arcade racer but i i did bring this one home a number of times and i gotta say i i recall enjoying it quite a bit so try i think you are going to have the most interesting story here from personal experience as you somewhat alluded to uh, just minutes ago so what was your personal experience with beetle adventure racing growing up uh, yeah i mean it's <laughs> i've actually kind of got a funny story about picking it up before that I, I say that i thought it was kind of funny that you know you're talking about you know your home uh your home video store. You know, I, I had video show place. I was growing up uh, in Delaware at the time. Nice. Which was, uh, you know, I, I had a blockbuster. It was a little further away, but I only ever ran stuff from there like, you know, two or three times. It was all about the local place for me. And that was where I rented stuff like, you know, Top Gear Rally and, you know, uh, several other uh, racing games on the N64. I would say that was like kind of the generation, honestly, where I was most into racing games that weren't called Mario Kart. <laughs> Fair. nowadays like mario kart you know that's about really all i'm interested in in terms of modern racers i, I would be into f-zero if it you know existed in, in modern right. form Aww. r.i.p now i'm sad yeah so honestly though like i wasn't really i'm not a car guy like i've never really generally gone for real car games although i like arcade racers um, you know, I, lo I love cruising. I love those games. But this was kind of a strange game in retrospect to have caught my eye to want to buy it day one. And I kind of had this <laughs> this thing going on. I've never heard anyone else talk about this. So I don't know if this was like completely unique to my KB toys or or what. But if you pre-ordered a game at KB toys you got a $10 gift certificate when you picked it up. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And I always put that $10 gift certificate back into the next game. And so I was getting, you know, N64 games were 
49.99 Delaware. There's no sales tax. So, I mean, it was, it, it was what it was, you know? So I was regularly getting new N64 games for, uh, 39.99 for years. Uh, but usually that was like first party Nintendo or second party Nintendo, you know, uh, or, you know, a Squaresoft game on the PlayStation, you know, heavy hitters. And I was honestly surprised when I asked them, can I pre-order Beetle Adventure Racing? And they said, yeah. So, I mean, this 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 endless ten dollars off of all of my new games still applied uh, to this, you know, third party game that I didn't even think they'd take pre-orders for. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I picked it up. I mean, the reason it caught my attention is something like, yeah, I really want that was because I was a huge fan of Pilot Wing 64. Mm. Mm. And the previews for this game looked really good. It was really impressive looking for the time. It looked like it just had a lot of fun course design. It looked, it just looked like a world that you wanted to play in, you know? So I was like, okay, you know, paradigm or, or, or paradigm as I thought it was called at the time. <laughs> uh, paradigm <laughs> entertainment's making this game, uh, you know? So, I mean, they, they obviously knew what they were doing with the N64 and uh, the game did not disappoint. I like to think that, the clerk at the, at the KB toys when you like rolled up in there and you're just like, yeah, can I, can I put my $10 down on a, on a pre-order for Beetle adventure racing? Like in his head, he was just like, I, I don't, has anybody done that? Can he, can he do that? And he's just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can do that. Then as soon as you left, he's like asking his manager, he's like, has anybody can, are we allowed to do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could pre-order wherever the heck you want at Funko land. Oh, geez. Yeah, <laughs> that's a callback. But at KB, I was legitimately surprised that like they had no problem with that. And it's like, OK, well, the, the endless $10 off certificate lives on. Nice. <laughs> Got to game that system, wow. man. All right. So, Chris, what's your boring story? <laughs> I, I already said it. My, my dad bought a beetle. Was it three beetles? No, just one. OK, it was red. OK, he had a flower in it. I don't know why, but he did. But that in terms of stories, mm. the plot writing, this, I don't know why it's, it's, we're, we're covering it. People we're covering the plot of Beetle Adventure Racing. Listen, we have a structure to the show. We follow the structure. We stick with it. That's right. Having said that, I don't know why the fuck we're talking about the writing in Beetle Adventure <laughs> Racing. Well, I mean, maybe not the writing, but I mean, you know, the, I always thought the announcer had a very fun sort of voice. See, uh, thank yeah. you. That's what I said too. You know, the, I, I honestly like the, whenever I've booted the game up in, in recent years, I always think like, is that, is that Charles Martinet? Cause like, <laughs> like he sort of sounds like he was the narrator for this game runner Two, that was like the sequel to bit trip runner. Oh yeah. Oh wow. I did not know that. And he like narrates the game and the announcer like sort of strikes a similar sort of enthusiastic announcery tone. And I'm like, is, is that? And I look it up and it's like, no, it's not. And then the next time I boot up the game, I'm like, is that really not Charles Martinet? And then I look at, no, it's not <laughs> Charles. Martinet. I mean, I'm, I, is that, I don't, that might be a weird thing to think. I don't, I don't know why it just pops in my head. Like it, it sounds like a tone I've heard him use the v relatively few times you hear him not be Mario. Right. Right. And I still think Charles Martinet is probably yet, even though he's extremely famous, one of the most underrated voice actors in the video game industry. It's a shame. He's not actually playing Mario in, 
the Mario movie. Mm, I, it, yeah, it is a crying shame. I still can't believe that happened, but <laughs> it's so easy. It's right there for you. I know, right? <laughs> so that fulfills the plot writing section of this. Speaking about getting played like Mario's voice, we'll start out with you, Shane, on this one. What did you think about the gameplay for Beetle Adventure Racing? Yeah, man, it's more fun than it probably has any right to be. That's that's really what it is, particularly for something that, as I said earlier, is by all accounts, like a cynical licensed cash grab kind of title. Right. All told, I think the standout here in terms of gameplay is 100 percent the track design. The levels are just fantastic. One of the things that I noticed going into it again, having not played it since, you know, the, the before times. The levels are a lot longer than I remember. Yeah. Like one lap is like, I don't even like several minutes. And I was like, holy shit, this feels really long. Yeah. Like three minutes. Yeah. And at first I was like, you know, this feels like this could drag. But then as I sort of got back into the, into the groove of the, the beetle adventure racing, I was like, oh, right. Yeah. This actually is very purposefully done because each one of the levels and i think all told there's something like half a dozen i think there's six six levels yeah each one of them is just so like well crafted and full of details with so many different like alternate routes you can take that it's likely that you won't see everything in a level in one like run through perhaps even in a couple of run throughs yeah and that's fantastic Especially when you think of like a lot of other arcade racers that were this was basically going up against was the creativity there for sure. Yeah. But I think the just the sheer amount of stuff that is packed into each one of these levels is like almost unparalleled. And so it's just a lot of fun exploring. Like I found myself spending the first two out of three laps of every race purposefully trying to go off the beaten path as much as possible to like find all the different alternate routes, find the breakable boxes for bonus points and just seeing what was there. Cause I mean, each one of the like little alternate like routes through the levels tend to also have very distinct and unique environmental things that are going on as well that you could just totally miss. Like for instance, in the uh, Infernal Isle level, which I'm going to come back to again later because I think that level's fantastic. The first two run-throughs, the first two laps, I didn't even realize that there was like a Jurassic Park section because I just didn't go that way. And then on the third like lap, I just took the actual main path, and it takes you through this area that's obviously like an homage to the first Jurassic Park movie with a T-Rex and everything. And I was just like, "Holy shit, this is great." So, yeah, I just think that level of creativity and detail uh, that they really put into that is just stellar. There's so much care that was put into a fucking VW Beetle game. <laughs> I just it blows my mind. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you say that, but I, I would love to know. I mean, and maybe, you know, something I don't, but I, I got to wonder, like, I'd love to hear from the actual original development team. Like, I kind of suspect that this was a game concept that they were working on and building and it could have been any car. And it's just mm -hmm. like EA has the money. They say, make it a Beetle game. And, you know, in, in Australia, they didn't have the Beetle license. It, it's some other car. I can't remember what it is in Australia. HSV. Yeah. So. I don't really like, I don't know. Like it's so well crafted that I, I kind of feel like it was a project of passion 
by the developers and it's just kind of the license that makes it look like it isn't, <laughs> you know, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, I, and I think you're really on the right track with that too. No pun intended. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of, you know, the different paths and things, you know, something that, that really struck me when I was, uh, you know, kind of revisiting the game earlier today, I noticed that like the nitro boost boxes, like they don't respawn over the course of the track, which actually encourages you to take a different path each lap. If you, if you can, mm -hmm. because you've spent the nitro boxes on this side path, while well, you better find another side path or just stay on the main path because there might be other nitro boxes, uh, you know? So, and there, a lot of times you'll see like this random box, like up in the air, and, you know, it's usually it's just points or something, but it makes you wonder, like, OK, like you have to be able to get up there somehow. So there's like some side path I didn't see the entrance to. I don't play a lot of racing games today, so I don't really know if anything comparable has really come along over the years. But I just feel like there's so there's a level of care put into these. You know, it's yeah, it's a small number. It's only six tracks, but I feel like there is just so much focus on making all of them just like really good in a way that you wouldn't if you're making, you know, a modern Forza or Gran Turismo or whatever. And, you know, there's a push to just have so much content in the game. I don't know. But that that said, with all my praise of, of the track design, you know, I love Inferno Isle. I love uh, the Sunset Sands. I, I, I love all of the first four levels. I've never really loved the last two levels that much, though. Hmm. The, the last two levels are Metro Madness and Wicked Woods. Mm -hmm. And I do I do like the idea of like sort of a, you know, horror themed or spooky themed uh, level racing track level. But I feel like a big part of it back in the day was just like it was like really it was just so dark. It's really hard <laughs> to see on my TV back then. Yeah. So I never liked Wicked Woods very much. And even today when I was playing on my, you know, HDMI modded N64, it's like. I, I just, I don't know that level. Does, I, I want to like that level. I love like horror themes, but that level is just not resonating with me for some reason. The, the Metro level is like, it's, I think it's a good level in terms of it does have like a lot of like paths you can go through and like garages. You can just like crash through the glass and stuff like that. But just like the setting just feels so passe. Yeah, it's so commonplace. Mm. It doesn't fit the more exciting, uh, adventuresome aspect of uh, the rest of the levels, I guess. Yep. No, I 100% I agree. I thought that that was actually kind of an odd choice, given the selection of all the other levels being so completely outlandish that you just have like, here's a city. Yeah. I mean, of course, the, the first level is like Coventry Cove and you're like going around the English countryside or something like that but you know there's like castles and things like that and you know you do fun things like driving through a barn i mean you do wacky things but it's not quite of the level of like have you played cruising blast on the switch mm -hmm. yeah uh, like it is so absurdly over the top <laughs> that you're almost numb to it you know it's right. like oh you know you're just a triceratops flipping through the air and you know <laughs> doing donuts through a, a runaway carnival wheel you know like it's so over the top that it's like like i said you're almost numb to it whereas like the stuff that aside from like the little Jurassic Park bit, like 
Beetle Adventure Racing is a little more grounded, but it's just like fanciful enough. It like hits this really nice sweet spot of when you do, you know, have these, you know, spectacular jumps and, you know, just the general spectacle of it. Like it's it's it feels cool and special, I guess. Yeah. And that that actually functions as a great sort of dovetail into talking a little bit about how some of the levels actually change over time, which I think is another thing that sort of ratchets up that that impact of the the craziness in that. Like, so if we're talking about Infernal Isle again, just because it's a good example, you know, it starts out as like, oh, this is this neat. We're, we're racing through this like little jungle island. That's cool. And, you know, the the Jurassic Park shit notwithstanding. Once you get to the third lap, the route by the end of that lap basically completely changes uh, behind the scenes without you even knowing it. And you get redirected down a different path that you have yet to actually go down at all in the first two laps. And not only that, but the the island has devolved into just like everything is on fire. The volcano burning has exploded. <laughs> the little village is burning down. And like, so that's just a really fantastic touch. And that's not the only level where that happens either. Of course, the impact of that, you know, the first time is always the best because you're like, holy shit. And maybe a little less so after that. But I just the creativity that went into that. I just I have to applaud them. You know, So what about you, Chris? I've heard you guys like really praise the game. Like, I, I think to a point. Yeah, there's absolutely something there. But more to your initial point, Shane, mm. the initial time you play the game on novice and you just start out and the three cars you get are super slow. Right. Plus the long track length that initially didn't hook me. Uh, the other thing is I heard there's a lot of off tracks that you could take. And oh, yeah, there, there are a ton, which definitely makes this game unique. The unfortunate part is when you find these things, they I want to think of them as shortcuts, but they didn't it didn't seemingly provide me any benefit if I took them. So yeah. it was a little off putting. So it'd be like they're not no. they're not really shortcuts most of the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I think you really got to think of the adventure in the title, though, right? Sure. It's sort of tapping into that, you know, exploration and discovery that really the N64 as a whole was was largely kind of about with its platformers and stuff. Like I kind of thought of as an extension of that. I guess San Francisco Rush also kind of, you know, did some similar stuff like, you know, finding the keys and things like that in these sort of wild places. But you know, like I was saying earlier, like, I think the fact that there's like nitro boosts on the different paths sort of encourages you to take a different path each time. Oh, so certainly. like they could like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, though, with the shortcuts. And I, I actually feel that way a lot with a more modern racing game like Mario Kart 8 or something like it's like, oh, well, there's like another path here, but it's like roughly equivalent. Yeah. To the other pads. It's like, is there really an advantage? I, I I do prefer the idea of like a shortcut that really feels like, you know, it kind of a risk reward of like, well, it's going to be a little trickier to drive through, but if you do it right, you're going to gain some time. And I think Beetle Adventure Racing has a mixture there where sometimes they are shorter and sometimes they're just for discovery, you know? Yeah, it is. It's parsing together those two, because one of the things you can do is you can go to these individual tracks and get practice. Which is which is really nice. You don't have to worry about other vehicles. You can do it on all by yourself. And that's that's good practice to kind of develop your own route through these tracks on championship mode, which is like the main meat, unless you go to multiplayer, of course. But the, the one of the reasons I don't like it so much is because I wish the other cars would go on these alternate paths with you. Mm. It might be an AI limitation. I'm not sure. 
But it's kind of like if the, if the intent and purpose is to do this adventure and to go off a beaten path, you would kind of expect all the other cars you're racing to do something similar. Like maybe maybe this is a bad path, but it has a bunch of boxes because it has that crash bandicoot element to it. <laughs> where if you no, it does. Like yeah, if you yeah. get all the boxes, you unlock stuff, you yeah, get additional yeah. content or you get continues in the crash bandicoot episode. As you as you may have heard me say, I don't like the boxes, but <laughs> it's here for you. If, if this is something that you want to do, if you want to complete this game, you want to get the most out of it. So just having seeing other vehicles, if they had like veered off in some weird path, that could have been an indicator to someone who just wasn't as explorative and just stayed on the same road to be like, oh, maybe there's a path I can go down. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I kind of feel like that's an intentional like you say, it's a limitation of the A.I. and it, it very well could be. Maybe it would have been harder to like make them make those decisions. But mm-hmm. I do think that they were kind of thinking uh, in terms of like, oh, well, let's not spoil not let's not spoil like the location of this stuff for the player, sure. you know, because I think dis- the discovering all the different paths is very much like what the main thing the game is about. No, absolutely. But that's kind of also where I'm going, because some of these paths are, are blatantly obvious. Yeah, they're not hidden whatsoever. So if I think if, if it was an AI limitation, it's an AI limitation. But I think if from time to time they had had a car veer off into a different direction and take a different path, I think that would have. That would have enhanced it a little bit because like like we said, these aren't necessarily shortcuts. They're just different paths. And so if everyone's on this adventure thing, not like let's not do like Sonic R or anything like that, where just you have cars going everywhere for whatever reasons. <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to beat this point to death. I just would have been a little bit uh think a little bit more interesting. But who knows the reason why they didn't? And, and the, the fact that to be more secret, that would have been great. Uh, that's that's a good reason. But I think that should have been more reserved. That would have been more reserved for like the actual shortcuts, things that would definitely take some time off your your voyage. I actually agree with you on on this point in that I found myself spending once I realized this could happen and granted this is probably on the easier difficulties cuz I did not go try hard mode and finish this on super difficult mm-hmm. or whatever but it would seem that the the AI is such that it, it sort of rubber bands in a strange way that like you're never actually that far away from regaining first place which is kind of nice. No, you're not. Um, and that also kind of, I, I think, pushes the player more towards, again, that more of an ex- exploratory aspect of it. But once I sort of figured that out, every single race, I spent the first two laps just doing nothing but like exploring and actually not even giving a shit about my placement in the race like at all. <laughs> and then I would spend the final lap just mainlining because to your point, the, the actual main like route is often the the most expeditious one in a lot of cases and a lot of times the easier one to navigate so that kind of became my strategy is i would do all my exploring in the first two laps i'd probably be somewhere between fifth and eighth place and then as soon as i hit lap three then i was like all right explore mode's over i need to get back to first place and i was able to regain it pretty consistently and then you know finish the race in first so i could you know continue on and that seemed to work pretty well yeah yeah, I, I was surprised when I was playing earlier today. You know, I've, I've got everything in the game unlocked, but I was just playing on easy and I was using the fastest cars in the game, which are the the alien bug mm-hmm. and the uh, the police car. And it's like, especially on easy, at least it's like almost impossible to lose with those cars because they are so much better than like everything else <laughs> in the game. And I actually went back to like sort of a tier or two of car lower after that, because I was almost feeling like I was 
going so fast through these levels that I was like not really doing the exploration part. It had been so long since I had really played any of these levels. I was like, I kind of want to back off and, you know, do things at a little more leisurely pace. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, the good and the bad there, too. Right. Because like you get to the third lap, you still want the objective is to still win these races so you can continue on with your with your races. Now, I will say this, too, with the faster vehicles, this game is way more fun than with the slower ones. It's not even close. Like I can still have a good time with Mario Kart on 50 CC. But like the difference between if I was if I'm going to compare this for Mario Kart, right? Uh, just, you know, baseline level here that everyone can kind of relate to, like the difference between 50 CC and 100 CC. The difference in Beetle Adventure Racing from novice to advanced was was way exponentially larger. Like when I went to advanced, I'm like, oh, wow, like the controls are really good. I'm actually having a really good racing driving experience. I have to pay attention to the way I I understeer oversteer. It probably lends itself to the need for speed lineage that it has heritage, whatever word you want to use. Right. And it works really well that way. And I was having a blast once the car started getting faster. Professional, the rubber banding isn't as much there as you get in the previous two. You you have to work for it a little bit more. Uh, the driving is more precise. You have to be better at it. Obviously, it's the professional mode. You should expect that. Also, just it's a lot more fun, too, because when you hit ramps, your car goes flying. <laughs> so you do get more of that adventure mindset where your car's just doing ridiculous tricks. And now you're doing like, a barrel rolls in the air and well, a, or alien aileron rolls or whatever you're doing. You're horizontally turning, whatever you want to call that. And then you land and you're continuing to drive. I'm like, I didn't know I could do that, but you can only really do that when you get your car on a ramp and just go like launching into the air, which you can't do on the lower difficulties. So that's fantastic. That's when the game like really clicks. I think that's interesting because the game really does like, especially with those faster cars, like the sense of speed is actually pretty surprising. Like, Mm. you know, I mean, sure, you know, say what you will about N64 frame rates, but, you know, when I'm playing an N64 game, my mind is in the mindset of, you know, well, the frame rate is what it is. And I, you know, move on. But yeah, those faster cars are, you know, you know, yeah, it, it is very fast. But like I said, like just for kind of revisiting the levels and trying to learn again, like where those shortcuts were. I kind of actually liked not quite the fastest car. Cause I, I almost felt like it was so difficult to like, see like where I could turn off when I was just flying by so fast. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point about the handling on the cars, because actually I, I kind of had the opposite view of this in that I actually kind of wish they were a little bit more arcadey. Really? See, I feel like they're super arcadey. See, I do too. Okay, here's my thing though: is like I kind of feel like because Chris, you were touching on this thing about how you know it's like, oh well, there's still this strategy of like you know properly breaking around the corners and blah 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 blah. Yeah, I actually didn't. That didn't feel good to me at all. You're more a Hydro Thunder kind of guy. Yeah, actually. Yeah, because like, honestly, I, I I feel like it was trying to straddle this weird line between like racing sim light and like full on arcade racer. And I kind of just went wish that it would have went full arcade racer where I would have to think less about that sort of stuff. And I'm not saying that it was like super complicated and it's like I'm trying to shift gears, although you can play in manual if you're 
a crazy person, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, that was the one downside for me is like I never quite got the hang of like nailing those corners without just, you know, rubbing my headlight up against the wall. Oh, I did that all the time, too. I, I can kind of understand where you're coming from with that, honestly, because I, I tend to be very much, you know, just hold the gas button and go and in the kinds of racing games that I typically play. Right. You know, I've never really <laughs> fully appreciated the whole idea of like, you know, analog triggers for, you know, more sim type racing games or even not so sim type racing games, you know, stuff like Forza Horizon, whatever, which people say is not sim. But like when I try that, I was like, wow, I am bad at this because <laughs> like i just have a hard time just like not holding the trigger all the way like that that gradation of gas in racing games is just something i've never really mastered right but when it's just this binary you know hold a to go press b to break like that that's not too much for me like just just tap and break a little bit to go around the corner that's not so bad for me i mean I would, you know, again, Paradigm Entertainment, I would put this right up there with Pilot Wings in terms of a, a N64 game that, like, I could just pop in on a whim and just, like, do a race, you know, or fly through a level in Pilot Wings and have a good time. Because, like, the, those controls, to me, are so natural, but that could also just be, you know, a large part is just I played them so much as a as a teenager. Yeah, and I think part I of my personal issue is that i'm so used to mario kart at this point mm -hmm. that i really just want to be able to drift around every single corner and just keep going you can now, now this game does not really have a drift mechanic so right uh that in a lot of ways i guess keeps it simpler in the control aspect so you you take away drifting you kind of add a bit of a need to break you know maybe that's really what my problem is that it's not even about complexity i just uh, i just I just want to go fast all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you can drift. It just doesn't help. Well, yeah, there's the problem. There it is. Yeah, but you can definitely drift. There is there. There is. If you press brake at the right time and turn your car will drift like properly. It's just your car will also significantly slow down and will not help you. Oh, yeah. I mean, if that's what you're talking about, sure. Like I tried doing that with like the e-brake turns and, you know, yes, you're right. It does drift. And you'll just spin in the complete opposite direction. <laughs> I also love how like the opponents that you're racing against, if they even touch your vehicle, they fly off the track and that doesn't <laughs> matter for any difficulty. They just bump you. They go flying and like they're they get aggressive sometimes, too. They try to push you off the track. But if they just come up behind you and you just get in front of them, they touch your touch your back bumper. Oh, they're gone. They go five seconds behind. <laughs> that might be part of the rubber banding, but it's hilarious. You know what? One interesting thing, too, is if you tap the L button, you respawn. So, like, if you're, like, flying off a cliff or about to fall into the lava, like, you can tap the L button. It really feels like you didn't, that you aren't punished very strongly for it. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you have a rolling start and everything. Like, it's not. Wow. Yeah, and if you like went off like a, a you know a shortcut or something, and then like things go really sideways, like tap the L button, you're immediately back on the main path. It's almost a little too jitterous, actually. Honestly, the respawn. I need to go back and play it like that. Then that, <laughs> I, I'll be I'll take generosity all day when it comes to these racing games. <laughs> no shame. So I think we've talked about the gameplay quite a bit here. Now, let's get into something that I think is might be divisive mm. um, or might not be, because, I mean, this is this is a game of that era that usually gets talked down to quite a bit. 
So we're going to talk about how this game looks graphically. So try, we're going to start out with you. Now you already said earlier, you're playing this with a HD modded N64. So you might have a different perspective on how this looks. Cause I don't think myself or Shane has exactly the same setup you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you know, I played it RF run through my VCR back in the day. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think it has a really nice uh, texture for the system. I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of the better looking games on the system personally. I mean, and it definitely, it previewed well. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I pre-ordered this. Like, I mean, it, it looked good in screenshots and stuff. And I think it held up, you know, I don't, I don't really have a solid idea of where the frame rate kind of hovers around, you know, it definitely has its problems, but I, I think it, it looks very nice. Uh, there's sort of a, you know, at the time I was very like not too into a lot of Western games. Like there were a lot of like European games I liked, like from rare and things like that. But there was like, I always thought like American games in particular, like kind of very often didn't had had a certain amount of polish that I was used to from Japanese games. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this game did not really feel like the typical American game of the era. Like just the way the geometry is kind of constructed and sits in the world. It feels very solid. Like I, I it, it's a weird thing to describe, but like, I felt like a lot of other games from other American developers, like, there was almost this sense that the, you know, the world was made of these eggshells, which it essentially is, right? I mean, it's just these flat polygon fa faces, but something about the way that everything is textured and, and sort of the vertices and the way it all fits together just creates this very sort of natural, solid, real place feel to me. And of course, I mean, I'm not saying it looks, <laughs> looks real by modern game standards or anything, but like, I don't know, it just, it, it feels... Visually, it feels solid to me. Hmm. I would generally agree with you, Try, uh, especially if I put myself back in the mindset of 1999, because I, I initially when I turned on this game and, and I'm playing, I'm playing on a CRT. The initial thought was, wow, these these models are pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I have to remember this is this is 1999. I have to have a different thought process here. And the more I began to play it. The more I, I got used to it again, the more that my eyes kind of adjusted to what was on the screen. And I started to notice some things. One is that the models for the the vehicle you were controlling, the, the bug you were controlling, that's phenomenal, especially for the N64. That is a really good looking model. The models of your opponents, not not so much. They're not that good. The other thing I was thinking about is like Gran Turismo is it is because that game came out that was on the PlayStation. Was it as good? I don't remember it being as good, but then I really started thinking about it. And there's so much more going on in the environments in this game. Mm. So it may not be as crisp. It may not be as sharp, but there's more stuff for better and for worse, because the N64 still has that smear to it. Now, I don't have it in, in RGB or HDMI. I have it on as video. So there might be that to it. And it's it's a little bit more difficult to really judge it when I'm comparing it to other systems that were contemporary at the time on, on the same CRT TV through an RGB connection like the, the Saturn and the PlayStation. So it, that might not be necessarily fair. But what I can say is that when you compare it to like a Mario Kart, yes, a Mario Kart's going to look better, but the Mario Kart also had a different way of presenting its graphics. And I do understand what you say by it doesn't feel like a Western game either, 
And I think that's because, you know, when you look at Western games of that era, they really had a stick up their ass in terms of game design. They didn't really know how to have fun unless it was just super like weird, like road rash character portraits or super dark, like twisted metal. This was just it was having fun. It was enjoying itself like you would get out of a Japanese game. And it also had that presentation like the Tyrannosaurus Rex trying to eat your car. You didn't get that in a Western game. You, You got that in Japanese style games. So I completely understand what you're saying. But in terms of overall graphics, it is hard to go back to for me. But when I really sit down and think about how it compares to other N64 games of the era, I do think it does stand above what you would normally expect to get, especially in early 99, late 98. Shane? Yeah, so listen, N64 is kind of like my my warm and cozy spot <laughs> in that I, like yeah. while the Super Nintendo is technically the system that I think I quote end quote grew up on more than anything. Then 64 hit right around the time where like that, that's my like, even though it looks like garbage, you know, now for the most part, it's I'm biased. I know I am. It's, it's my warm and fuzzy place. And so yeah. and actually, you know what? That's a good analogy because a lot of this shit looks real real fuzzy right (laughs) but i mean having said that though i i really do think that the visual presentation here is really well done and i think it benefits greatly from that sort of fun sort of aesthetic that they've got going on i would almost argue that it's borderline cartoony in a way but like not in a derogatory fashion like it's one of those deals that we've talked about before where games that have very distinct aesthetic styles tend to hold up better than games that try to go for a hundred percent realism. I think that that works in this game's favor as well, because, you know, to your point, you know, you've got a fucking T-Rex that comes out of nowhere. And I think a lot of the very vibrant colors that they've used definitely help. It's part of the reason why Mario 64 still looks relatively good even to this day. Whereas a lot of other N64 games, like my beloved gauntlet, as much as I love that that title, it looks like complete trash now. And that's just because it's a lot of like brown, you know, or very dark. The haunted level, notwithstanding, I, I think that that presentation choice benefited it greatly. And it's just like Chris, like you mentioned, it's just every level is so chock full of shit that like it's hard to not appreciate it. There, there's so much detail. And and I think try you mentioned it earlier where you're like yeah well you know there's only six levels but they put a lot of care into it and i think that that was really it was it was to the game's credit because they could just focus that time and effort on just that handful of levels and really really flesh them out and so i think that you can see that you know in the in the visual presentation that you've gotten here i will note that there were a couple of things uh, as far as frame rate issues are concerned that I that did pop up. Truth be told, it could be how I was playing the game, because, of course, I, I think out of all three of us here, I might have been the only one that was emulating it. But I don't think that that's endemic to like just the emulated version. I think it's just the game itself, particularly in like the snow level and environmental effects tend to drag the frame rate down a little bit. And it is very noticeable, but not so much that it was like extremely detrimental to gameplay or anything. So 
Yeah, as far as a Nintendo 64 game goes, I think this one holds up a lot better than a lot of the other ones. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Okay, I, I think this, this section is going to be relatively quick, and I'll start out with this one is, is music and sound. We talked about the announcer's voice, did. Which, is, which is fine. And, He's cool. Uh, that, he is cool. <laughs> and that's all I'm, I really want to talk about because, I mean, the, there is music there. May or may not be Charles Martinet. We're not sure. It's not. It, Probably not, no. <laughs> Other than that, it's just it's it's uh, maybe I'm spoiled. I, I expect racing games to be similar to shmups and that I expect them to have great soundtracks or at least memorable soundtracks, because you do have games like Daytona USA where they're not rocking soundtracks, but I can I can definitely remember those soundtracks. There's there's no forgetting that or at least something that's going to keep me going right this is just i don't want to call it trash but it's trash <laughs> i hate to say that you know it's never been like a soundtrack that i've like listened to outside the game but i guess just out of familiarity you know of it yeah. you know over you know almost two and a half decades i you know i i couldn't tell you off the top of my head like what any given piece of music from the game sounds like when i'm not playing it but then when I do play it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is familiar. You know, I don't know. It's it's kind of got a very uh, it's very simple, just a lot of very light percussion sort of uh, sort of taking kind of a, a laid back pace. Like, I think there's supposed to be sort of like some retro 60s ish undertones to certain mm-hmm. parts of it. But it never it never goes full on funk either. No. Which might might have been fun if it did. <laughs> True. I thought it was very of the era, though. I, I like late 90s, kind of light techno, lighthouse, yeah. not going full into it. It matched with, you're right, kind of like that late 60s, kind of, but turning it into more of a techno flavor, which matches with the vehicle you're driving. It's perfect in that sense. But yeah, yeah, I, I do think it was a little too muted, too. And I understand this is the N64. You're not going to get CD quality music out of. A racing game it's just you're on a cartridge i will admit that but it it does allow for you to play whatever music you want to in the background without feeling guilty about missing something else yeah i mean you, you can turn the music down separately from the sound effects if you want so i mean there you go you yeah. Know, yeah yeah the music it's just it's kind of there but it I, I think it fits the game well enough it gives it a sort of a, a chill laid back vibe to it but it is i think like you know most American game music of the time, you know, it, it's meant to kind of blend into the background. It's not meant to call attention to itself like Japanese music was or or music from, you know, say rare, you know, I mean, rare was always right. like way on top of things with their soundtracks. But yeah, I mean, it's it's about what you'd expect. For some reason, I'm just getting this vibe. Like if I had to personify the music of this game, it just feels like the gap t-shirt and puka shell necklace of video game music like that's what this feels like to me yep (laughs) i mean am i wrong like that's that's like late 90s early 2000s that's all i could think of you want something that blends into the background it's a fucking gap ad like that's what it is it's the abercrombie and fitch of soundtracks yeah there you go you can smell the cologne from halfway across the mall your vehicle's wearing some jinkos. Oh, hell yeah. No, that's that's fuck that's twisted metal, man. That's that's totally different. That's the wallet chain of video games, okay? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, for someone as like deliberately uncool as me, like, you know, hey, the racing game that features a beetle, you know, like yeah. that's, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the one I'll buy. I'm not going to buy the one that has cool cars. I also love that I think this might be in over a hundred episodes the first time that we've ever talked about the music and said that one of the positive aspects is that you can turn it off. <laughs> so there is that. So just crank that music down and put your VHS copy of Spice World on in the background. Yes. You will go full late 90s. It'll be glorious. All right, so we're going to go over some miscellaneous stuff, uh, but to start out, we're just kind of going to double back on the gameplay because one of the most important things about this era, especially with racing games, was how the multiplayer aspect of it contributed to the overall experience. Now, I wasn't able to play this game multiplayer. Shane has informed me that he has not played this game multiplayer either because he had no friends growing up, too. True. So try you have played this game multiplayer. How is multiplayer for, for Beetle Adventure Racing? Uh, you know, the thing I remember the most, I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't think that, is there three or four player in it? I think it might just be one or two players. I think it's just two. Yeah. I think so. I yeah, yeah. Because I mean, two. the game's pushing the system pretty hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to scale, scale it back enough to have a, a usable frame rate with four players. I think I, I definitely only remember specifically playing it with two players, but, uh, races, you know, me and me and me and my buddy that, that, uh, play, I played a lot of N64 with back then. I don't think the racing aspect was really so much as much of a mainstay as Mario Kart or F zero X was, uh, but the battle mode, I don't know if this is like a hot take or not, Ooh. but I think the battle mode beats any Mario Kart battle mode. Whoa, that, that is a hot take. No, you need to go into this because I don't even know anything about well, it. Well, see, and that's that's the problem. You know, this is a hot take. I, I it's you know, it's so far in the past. I don't know how well I can back it up. <laughs> ah. You you went around like there was there was at least one mode. I remember and I can't remember if this was like the only mode, but there was something about these like different colored beetles that you had to collect, like literal, actual like ladybug icons. Mm. I think there were like maybe five or six different colors and there would be like a ladybug that appears somewhere on the map and you have to drive to it and it rotates through colors, you know, every second or every several seconds. And you have to collect. I, I, I think this is how it went. You have to collect all of the different colors. Uh, so, you know, you're kind of racing against your buddy to get to the ladybug and hoping that when you drive through it, it's going to be a color that you need. Uh, and then you can pick up weapons. I don't think I, I don't remember if weapons are in like the racing multiplayer mode or not. They're not in the single player mode. I don't think. Right. No, they're not. There's definitely like missiles and, you know, nitrous boosts and, you know, your, your, your typical, you know, Mario Kart esque uh sorts of weapons but yeah the about battle motion and you know sort of a you know a non-linear battle arena uh and i you know i remember playing a lot of uh block fort and all that in mario kart 64 uh probably you know since it was mario kart 64 was such an early game probably overall played more battle mode in that but once we got into the beetle adventure racing uh battle mode it's like man this is this is really good. This is really fun. You, you hear the announcer say a lot more fun things. You know, he does his groovy. 
and stuff like that and oh, nice. battle mode. So yeah, it's 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 fun times. It's fun times. I have to I wish I could try this out. I'm gonna have to bring this over to your house, Shane. Yeah. And we're gonna have to have some battle mode. Let's do it. I'm down. I know you have a factoid of sorts before we go into our final thoughts, Shane. So how about you share that with us? Oh, sure. I mean, and actually try already brought it up because he's apparently a beast at this game and he's just like, yeah, of course (laughs) I got that. But I I just wanted to point out that I thought it was pretty neat in terms of like the unlockables and stuff, because, of course, we didn't even really touch on that too much. But there are quite a few unlockables as far as like new paint jobs and like decals and stuff that you can get for your cars. And um, there are some, some new vehicle, well, not new vehicles. They're still fucking beetles, but new versions of the beetle that you can unlock. And if you beat the game on like the hardest difficulty, you unlock a police beetle, which is kind of hilarious all on its own. But the really neat thing about that is the, the horn on that car will cause all of the other AI drivers to pull over Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Which is just fantastic. I was trying to remember what button even was the horn. And like, I was like hitting several things while I was playing earlier today. And I I couldn't even, couldn't even remember what it was, but I forgot about that part. Yeah. Which of course is like completely game breaking, but I assume they figure that if you've, you know, beaten it on the hardest difficulty, they're like, you know what? Here you go. You've earned it. Go nuts. You've earned it. Yeah. You know what? I'm glad that you explained that because uh, I was pretty sure i had done everything there was in the game but i couldn't remember how i unlocked these cars and the fact that you just confirmed that by extension the fact that you know my save of the game has the police car in it i have indeed beaten it on the hardest difficulty yes so thank you for confirming that i was a little (laughs) i was a little unsure if i had but i was pretty sure i'd done it you're welcome (laughs) glad i could give that to you All right. So that's all we have. And just briefly, if you're in Australia and we, I know we do have Australian listeners, if you don't know what Beetle Adventure Racing is, it's because it was called HSV Adventure Racing, as I alluded to very briefly over there. So I don't know what an HSV is, but apparently that's what you have over there in, in <laughs> the in the upside down. So there it is. That's the game it was called for the N64. Well, it's definitely not as cool as a new Beetle. That's for sure. Definitely not. No, it looked more like it was made for racing or something, which makes it infinitely less cool than an actual Volkswagen new beetle. <laughs> All right. So let's get to the final thoughts because try as our guest, he can have the final word on what he, whether or not he thinks this holds up today. So Shane, how mm. about you give us your thoughts on whether or not you believe beetle adventure racing is a game that you should go back to in the year of our Lord, 2022. Uh, yes. So listen, right. The new beetle is, was, a ridiculous car, you know, it always was. Um, and so it needed an equally off the wall game. And I, I strongly believe that this is that game. Neither of them really take themselves very seriously. And I think because of that, it just works. The controls to me do feel a little dated going back to it. Now the, the analog stick can feel a little touchy sometimes, and you'll probably spin out a little more than perhaps you'd like to, And the graphics are, as we've said, they're Nintendo 64 graphics. um, So take those, you know, however you will. I still think that in the pantheon of N64 games, this uh, holds up a lot better than others. But at the end of the day, it's it's still a surprisingly fun way to kill a few hours. And if you really want to get into it and unlock the extra, you know, beetles and different paint colors and things like that and find all the boxes and explore all the alternate routes, there's 
there's actually a, a decent amount of content to kind of dig into for something that honestly, by all rights, should have been just like a throwaway, you know, tie-in game for the new VW Beetle. So, so yeah, I, I think I think it definitely still holds up today. I think it's worth at least a couple of hours of your time, especially if you're into these kind of arcadey sort of racers. So for me, this is a little bit is pretty difficult for me to decide because I, I did have a lot of hangups with the way this game was designed. And I, I did have to put myself in the mentality of, well, if I, if I was in 1999, how would I feel about this game? I have a feeling don't hate me either of you two, but I, I feel like I'm going to go against the grain on this one and, and say barely. No, it doesn't hold up. And that's not to say it's, a bad game or it's not of good quality. I just think there's so many more options out there that you can have a, a, a much better time with. And I know you can make that argument with essentially any game you go, you go back with, but I feel like when you get into it, the, the, the price of entry on novice is going to be hard for a lot of people to, to understand its concepts, especially the fact that it advertises a lot of these off paths as shortcuts and, it is a little jarring to figure out that some of them can put you behind and the rubber banding is extremely weird, even though it does benefit you at times. Can you have fun with it? Yes. I, I would love to see like a modern version of this and, and to come out now and uh, to revamp it an HD version with, with every, all the bells and whistles that this game had today. But if I had to go back now to, to this genre of games would i rather play this or f-zero x and it's it's like f-zero x and it's it's not even close of course this game is fun but i when i say barely no i mean that there are so many other experiences on the n64 that you should go to first before going to this one and I, I hope that makes sense because I'm not trying to slam it. I'm sorry, Randall. I'm sorry. And you two enjoy this <laughs> apparently far more than I do. But I'm, I'm sticking to my guns and I'm going to say barely no. No, I, I heard you. What we're saying here is this is an official call for an HD remaster of Beetle Adventure Racing. I got it. <laughs> I yeah. take it. Yeah. I would take it. Yeah. I mean, you know what you said about, you know, there being so many more experiences on the N64 worth going to. See, in my head, I'm not really comparing this to F-Zero X or something. I'm thinking like in terms of real cars or at least cars that look like real cars. Sure. You know, because I can't remember if like the cruising games, like I, are they using real cars? I know that Cruising Blast uses licensed cars, but why would you be in it then when you could be a Triceratops? True. Of course. <laughs> but I can't remember if the original arcade or N64 uh, cruising games, because I love those games. Those are the only things on the N64 that would really be competing for me in terms uh, against Beetle Adventure Racing. Like it would be between one of the cruising games and Beetle Adventure Racing. If I was to pick mm. like, what is my favorite real car game of all time? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I keep in mind like nine to sim style games. I like some of the like I've I really liked Ridge Racer on PSP and I've struggled with those games as I've gone back to like the earlier ones because I've never quite got the handle on the drifting mechanic in the older games. Like it's really easy to do on PSP. But like going back to like some of the PS1 games, like I can't quite get the drifting. I really, really want to like those games. Like, I feel like there's something there I would enjoy, but I just haven't quite 
wrap my head around the controls on those. So as it stands, like the N64 is kind of where my favorite real car games are, if you want to call them that. Sure. Uh, and I would sure. have to say it's for me, it's Beetle Adventure Racing. Like that's just a company, you know, like you said before, uh, you know, N64 is my my warm and fuzzy place. And that that's it for me, too. Like this is a game. It's hard for me to exactly put my head head into the perspective of someone who has not really played this before or has barely played it before. I go back to this. I'm like, yeah, you know, this is my warm and fuzzy place. (laughs) Stuff like, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, you think cruising world is a better racer. I have to confess, like I I have a huge, huge, huge soft spot for the cruising games. You know, people who uh, watch my life and gaming, especially those who've watched it since the early days know that because I did a stupid episode on the cruising games. (laughs) But I only back in the day, for some reason, I only ever played cruising USA, which is like a bad game that I really yep. love. <laughs> yeah, sure is. <laughs> like it's it's terrible, but man, I'd play it anytime. <laughs> I'm like, I love that game. That's like that's just as the definition of just like some delicious garbage there. Poor man's outrun. I say that's like me in Castlevania 64. I I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think that's quite garbage. That that's 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 underrated. Oh, doesn't okay. deserve all the hate it gets. Doesn't try, no. try and I just became best friends. That's, that's what I heard. <laughs> but you know, the thing is like, I like cruising world and cruising exotica. Like I, I never, I don't, th- unless I maybe played the arcade versions. Like I never played the N64 versions of those. Like it seems like a game I would have rented back in the day, but I didn't, I I'd like, I never played those until I got them. Like, I don't know, like maybe seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And which is, is just surprising to me. So like they, they don't is like, I think they are stupid and wonderful and great. <laughs> and like, I think like, especially world has like really solid mechanics mm-hmm. and then like exotica has like the car flipping and it's just so stupid and wonderful. But I still think beetle adventure racing, like even over like cruising world, like I, I, I just something about it. It's, it's my warm and fuzzy place. Well, there you go, Chris. Absolutely fair. Hey, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Like I said, I'm going to be the outlier here and I will I will take the slings and arrows of of bad takes. No, but see, no, <laughs> I, I don't I don't even think it's a bad take. <laughs> like, I think you have a perfectly valid take. I think both try and I are <laughs> heavily nostalgic for yeah. this kind of thing. So, I mean, I think that definitely, you know, tints things a bit rose colored, one might say. Yeah. But, you know, I think you bring some objectivity to the discussion. So I think that's good. That's how I feel about Wave Race. So oh. I'm, I'm with you guys. Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I need to know about whose take on Wave Race because Wave Race is perfect. Oh, I perfect. love Wave Race. Okay, you, you, can't, you can't say anything negative to me about Wave oh, Race. Okay. I'll just tell you to go okay, home. Okay, good, good, good. Because, you know, Wave Race, I think, is a great example of a game that, like, I played a little bit back in the day. Uh, like, a friend, I think a friend had it or maybe he just rented it. Like, I didn't have that many opportunities to play it. Mm-hmm. And then I got my own copy, like after the N64 was, you know, well done and over with. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't I can't even believe this is an early game. Like, how did they so do good. this? And it's just like, oh, the controls are just like, oh, you could play that game anytime. Oh, it's perfect. Oh, oh, <laughs> we need to we need to scrap one of our episodes and bring it back for Wave Race. I know That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think. That might bring our discussion of Beetle Adventure Racing to a close for today. So 
first and foremost, before we jump into our usual spiel, uh, I would like to thank Try for stopping by today. This has been an absolute treat talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. But before we do our thing, uh, Try, for those of, the, those of them out there that might not know, what is it that you do out there on the internet and how can they find you? Uh, yeah, I am from the YouTube channel, My Life in Gaming. That's just, you know, youtube.com slash my life in gaming. We, uh, we mostly do sort of retro tech type stuff like hardware related to retro gaming. You know, sometimes we do stuff more game focused. Sometimes it's more uh, hardware focused. Sometimes it's not even necessarily retro. You know, it's just kind of whatever we feel like, but that kind of tends to be our area of focus. And, uh, you know, we, <laughs> Sometimes we spend a long time getting videos done. Kind of our main hook is, you know, in-depth deep dives with lots of meticulous editing. Uh, so it, it takes a while, but we do stream every Sunday night on YouTube, on our YouTube channel as well. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. And as far as we are concerned, if you are listening to this, then that does mean that you have found us. So hello. Hi. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. And if you'd like to engage with the show uh, in some other ways besides just listening, you can do that. And not only can you do that, we have made it easy for you. All you need to do is head over to Linktree slash Retro Hangover. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Retro Hangover. And you can find a menu of buttons that will take you wherever you want to go, as long as it's related to us, you can go to our public Discord, where we have a fantastic community. Uh, at the time of recording, this is the beginning of March, which means it's the beginning of a new month, which means it's the beginning of a new monthly high score challenge. So you can still jump in on those. That's always a, a fun time. Uh, I believe, actually, as we were recording this, it was decided that Arkanoid is going to be this month's game of choice. So there you go. And if you'd like to check out some other things, we do have our Patreon, if you'd like to support the show in that fashion, as well as the merch store and a couple other places, all the socials. And funnily enough, we also do a thing on Sunday evenings. Uh, Chris, would you like to tell the people what that is? Oh, yeah. Go to twitch.tv slash retro hangover. I guess we're competing with my life in gaming. Oh, no. I guess we are. We do it yeah, <laughs> on, on Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. We kick off our our streams from 9 to 11 p.m. on twitch.tv slash retro hangover. So if you can have my life in gaming and us up at the same time, do that yeah. because that's that's the way to do it. I don't want to trample over tries a street YouTube stream. <laughs> well, well, you know, we, we started eight. We used to start at nine, but we moved it up to yeah. eight, you know, because we're getting old. Uh, so right. I feel that. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. W watch us for an hour. Get bored of us. You know, you can head on over to your stream. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like we planned it. Uh, but seriously, yeah, go to uh, twitch.tv slash retro hangover and at least follow us and, and go there. But check out yeah, both channels. And I got to say for my life in gaming, thank you so much. Try uh, you guys got to check out my life in gaming, especially if you're into retro games. I know you are because you're listening to this uh, for the best picture experience that you can get out of any of your consoles or just tech in general or just any sort of review. The, their channel is absolutely fantastic. High production levels, very high quality. They go in depth on everything. It's fantastic. They got they got me through a deployment in Bahrain and uh, with with the stuff they did. And I am so grateful that they have the content that they do. And I plead with you to go check out my life in gaming. Some of the best YouTube content you could find out there. So thank you so much, Try, for showing up. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, go go check out the uh, N64 digital episode so you can 
see the uh, the very type of mod that I played Beetle Adventure Racing on earlier today. There you go. And then you too can experience the adventure. <laughs> all right. Well, I suppose with all of that being said, until next time. Play with your cute little adorable joystick. Shane here with a quick message. You know, the one rule Chris and I have always gone by regarding advertisements is this. It has to be something we use and can personally vouch for. If you know me, you know I love coffee. And Bones Coffee Company has been my go-to for home brewing for quite some time now. Their small batch beans come in an impressive variety of flavors like Mint Invaders from Chocolate Space or Electric Unicorn, which I swear tastes exactly like Fruity Pebbles. And the best part? No added sugar or calories involved, just natural flavors infused right into the beans themselves. Build your own sample pack of five four ounce bags to find out which flavors speak to you, or jump in head first with full 12 ounce bags. They've even got K-Cups. Step up your homebrew game with Bones Coffee by visiting bit.ly slash RHP Bones. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-H-P-B-O-N-E-S.